Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today is Shane Stanley, multi-Emmy award-winning filmmaker, and he's author of What You Don't Learn in Film School, A Complete Guide to Independent Filmmaking, available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Shane Stanley, go to shanestanley.net and whatyoudontlearninfilmschool.com. And follow him on Twitter at Shane Stanley, on Facebook at Shane Stanley Official, and on Instagram at Official Shane Stanley. And Shane, welcome to the show. Ira, thanks for having me. Good morning. It's Good an morning. honor to be here. Shane, you've been part of Hollywood for a long time, starting as a child actor, yet you've charted a course in independent filmmaking. Why did you make that decision? Because I wanted to work. Um, you know, I, I grew up in, in and around the industry. I did my first national commercial when I was nine months old. Did over 140 uh, projects, I think, before I was in the fourth grade in front of the camera. And my father was a filmmaker and uh, was always, you know, tinkering either on a moviola, a flatbed editing machine or a 16 millimeter Ari. And I was just fascinated with that. And as I grew older and started working in and around the industry, I, I worked steady as a hired as a hired guy. You know, I was a, a, a guy that was getting the calls, whether it be for, you know, editing or co-producing or doing camera or sound. But when it came time to doing the work that I really was passionate about, you know, the work was far and few between, you know, even if a studio or a network was excited about what it was we were doing, it was hurry up and wait. Gridiron Gang, which was our, you know, biggest commercial success with, with Dwayne Rock Johnson. I mean, we signed that deal with Sony in 1992. Didn't start rolling cameras, I think, until <laughs> 2000, 2012 or something. I don't know, 2011. And so it, it just, you know, I, I just, I spent a lot of time working with some different executives at Fox and some other networks. And it was just this constant development, development, development. And I just was more interested in making things and talking about making things. So I just chose the path of rolling up sleeves, getting hands dirty and doing whatever we could for whatever we could to stay busy and, you know, do what I love to do, which is make movies. Well, it's a big leap in that sense, because now you're dependent on yourself. And yeah. yes, you call the shots or sometimes you call the shots with partners you may have. And then you have to look at the whole budget. And you have to deal with the actual production. And then there's post-production. And then there's the marketing. So it's a lot of steps to do that. And yet you've taken the bull by the horns and you have created this life for yourself. I'm fascinated by it and the fact that you wrote this book. And where along the line did you decide, you know what, I have a book in me and I want to yeah. tell people about filmmaking? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I was consulting a lot. Uh, filmmakers, friends of filmmakers were always calling because I kind of found this niche of raising independent capital, making the movies I wanted to make, good, bad, or indifferent, working uh, with distributors and sales agents directly and, and making investors happy enough to want to keep going. So when, when you're in that situation, um, you know, people tend to take notice in the indie world and say, what's this guy doing? He's obviously found the formula. So I remember talking to a friend of a friend, probably gave him four hours on the phone. Didn't even feel like it. And I hung up the phone and my wife walked in and said, who, who have you been talking to for four hours? I said, oh, this really neat guy, you know, he's back East. He just did this film. And she goes, she spent four hours on the phone with this guy. He raised millions of dollars for a film that nobody wants. He can't give it away. He's not paying you a consulting fee and you're just doing this out of the kindness of your heart. She goes, honey, you do this like three or four times a week. Do you realize what you could be doing 
And I said, well, I got to, I got to give, I got, it just, you know, it's like, I've been really fortunate in this industry and I I've always had an open door policy. It's always been my thing. Somebody needs help. Somebody needs advice. I'm always there. And she said, well, God, write a book or something. <laughs> she walked out of the room. She was so frustrated and rightfully so. And about four or five weeks later, I got a, a call from a group out of Colorado. They wanted me to start blogging, doing these, uh, informative blogs that were working in entertainment, sports, industry, you know, all sorts of different levels of the world of business. And they tapped me to do these blogs. And I started doing these 500 words or less blogs for them once a week, and they were paying me for it. And they called up one day and said, Hey, you know, these are going really well, would you be interested in writing a book? So they kind of got me involved in that. And I, uh, I wrote the book. I'll never forget. I wrote it from uh, October October 15th to November 23rd, took a week off. I wrote the book in, in really three weeks. That's amazing. And That's wrote absolutely itself. amazing. And had had an amazing uh, editor, Marissa Foglia, take my words and put them into at least comprehensive. Said, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at, at articulating myself on paper and I don't read, so I don't really translate what works on a page very well. So she, she did a great job of keeping my voice and, and, and they got it out and it's been, you know, it's become the required reading, believe it or not, in quite a few film schools around the, the country and even in the world, the title has blacklisted me at a lot of universities. I bet. <laughs> and, and you know what? I don't care. You know, I say is if you're not pissing somebody off, you're not getting hurt, but a couple of big universities booted me out of their, um, out of their uh, board of directors or regular speaking engagements, just based on the title. And it's a shame they're, they've done their, their kids a great disservice because you can't learn everything in school. You're going to learn a lot from, from mistakes and trial and error. And that's all this is. Isn't there the fact that they're not open-minded about what you can contribute or other people can contribute to that academic structure. Yeah. That's fascinating. Well, they're, they're closed-minded because let's be honest, they, they play people's uh, hopes and dreams like, you know, the lottery and they, they want kids to get six figures in debt to these, these absolutely ridiculous notions that they're going to be the next Spielberg, Quentin Tarantino. And they don't, they don't give them the reality ups and downs of the business and tell them that they need to basically learn other crafts in our business. You know, it's like Chris Rossiter is doing such an amazing thing at LACC at, at some of the community colleges where he's teaching kids how to be grips and gaffers and assistant camera. And so wouldn't you rather be on a set around directors, producers, and actors in, in the business that you love and are passionate about than driving for Uber, you know, working in a cubicle. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, 80-something percent of the, of the students that leave the nest of these big film schools never earn a dime in our industry. And that's a fact. And they'll never admit to it, but I've heard that directly from many, many department chairs and heads of, of major universities. And, and these kids end up, you know, getting six figures in debt and leave and, and have to pay debt and they get married, they get into other things. And the next thing they know, they turn around, their dream was 10 years ago and they never, they never became anything. And that's what I want to avoid. I want to change that. I want to make it 80% of these kids do make an income. It's not, it's not rocket surgery, man. It's not hard. They well, just got to teach them different things. You mentioned LACC, Los Angeles City College, and the yeah. fact that community colleges and junior colleges traditionally have been very practical in their approach to the trades. I'll call it the trades, not even just Hollywood, but just in general. Yeah. So I think that's great what you just mentioned. You also mentioned something. I want to go back to it. Somehow you are able to incorporate all elements of filmmaking. And one of the most important, one of the ones that I would absolutely hate is to be able to raise capital. 
and yet you're able to do that. So it's as you as you said, you're making your investors happy and comfortable with what they're investing in. You're able to approach these people. They have you then have a track record, so you can go back to the well. Where did you pick up that particular talent? You know, our business is is every business really is Ira is is about relationships. Life's about relationships. It's about trust. I think the biggest mistake most most artists, filmmakers make is they sniff out rich people and they go in and they circle the wagons and they go in for the kill and they wonder why they're not successful. I never go into a relationship looking for a potential investor. I've been fortunate to be around a lot of very successful people, but that comes from what I do. You know, some of our investors I've known 20, 30 years and never asked, never talked about business. We just develop a trust and they can see what we do, what I do from a distance and they see it's working or they see they're in a situation where they want to start to get involved or, you know, our, our investors have come to us. We haven't knocked on doors and said, Hey, we, we need, or we want, and I'm not going to say we haven't done that in the past, but the people we work with now came to us. We, we didn't go to them with, with hat in hand. And, um, you know, it's about, it's about relationships. If you're, if you're looking to go in for the quick kill and find somebody just to, to write a check and move on and, and, and write your, your budget, you know, you're going to be waiting a long time. And, and look, you know, I just turned 50 this year. I'm not a kid. These are relationships I've had since I was in my teens, twenties, thirties, and forties. You know, this stuff doesn't happen overnight. And you get to a point in your life where you're working with people that trust you. It's business. Uh, our friendships have never been, been marred or, uh, you know, bruised because of the business. Sure. We've had some, some, projects that have been more successful than others. We, we want them all to be successful, but because we're in it together for the long haul, we're able to hit a couple of, you know, base hits and doubles. And then when we have a grand slam, it kind of makes everything good again. So, you know, it's, it's my, my advice to people is really, it's just about relationships, letting people see who you are. You know, a lot of people get in the mix with rich and successful people. They go to a party and they get drunk or they do drugs and they, they, they fraternize in a way that, they forget they're they're being looked at. You know, every day when you're around people like that, I believe is a test. Uh, how you conduct yourself, how you speak, how you interact with the help is so important. You know, um, I've known so many investors over the years that will literally turn off to somebody because of how they talk to a waiter at a restaurant when they go to dinner, how they treat a valet parking attendant. We're all equal in the grand scheme of things. I don't care if you're you're scrubbing toilets or you're winning Oscars. We're all the same. And I think it's important that the people that you want to have long-term relationships is long-term relationships and in business. I think it, you know, you really need to to show them who you are. And if they don't like who you are, they're not going to invest in you. It's that simple. That's great advice. You know, we're in this remote world, unfortunately, for yeah. the last couple of years. And it leads to a question that I've thought about. And for you, I think it's a great question, which is, can you be in Hollywood and yet not of Hollywood? Because we're all working remotely, so we're not necessarily dependent on that physical entity or geographical entity known as Hollywood, even if it really doesn't exist anymore. Or it may exist. I'm not even sure anymore. <laughs> but can, I'll, I'll go back to the question, can you be in Hollywood and yet not of Hollywood? Or of Hollywood and not in Hollywood. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I prefer it that way. I, it was up to me. I'd live on some Montana mountain in, in a cave. But you now my wife and I, our parents are getting older. 
and we need to be there for them. So we're, I always say we're stuck in town. Um, we, we really found the pleasure of shooting out of town recently. Um, I, I don't think anybody cares as long as you're able to deliver something interesting and engaging and visually stimulating, they'll let you shoot it in the moon. You know, if, if you can, I have found that the further away I am from Hollywood geographically, the more productive, the more at peace I am. I don't feel there's, there's this suppression that, that, you know, some close friends of mine in the industry and I have that we get on our, in our chest, this, this weight, this pressure of the buzz, maybe it's the traffic, it's constant sirens, the helicopters, the bustle, you know, I try to, to get out of that as often as possible. And, and just, I find when I'm far away from it, the more productive, the more uh, healthy I am, the more, uh, the more I get done in a short period of time. You know, doing this last film, we shot night train in Palm Springs and in Las Vegas. And the first thing I did is I got back to LA and started cutting the film and I put about six days in and I just felt like I was treading water. I was, I was in the mud and we just said, screw it. Let's just, let's just remotely go far away. So, you know, my, my partners and I, we, we just kind of set up at it you know, a couple hundred miles away from LA just to get me out. And uh, it was the best thing I could have done. I mean, it was like the movie just came together in like a couple of days. It was like, oh, wow. <laughs> and I slept better and I had many months and it was just really nice. So yeah, I, you know, to answer your question of six and a half hours ago, I don't think you have to be in it. You know, look at some of the, my favorite filmmakers like Robert Rodriguez or, you know, Sidney Lamette, just people all stayed away from Hollywood. They, they do their own thing, you know, Obviously, you got Tyler Perry's ruling Georgia. You know, I don't think as long as you deliver content relevant people want, I don't think they care where you are anymore. No, I think you're right. But there is a mindset in Hollywood. That's the other part of that question. There's a mindset in Hollywood that's always been there. And it's a hierarchy in a way. And it's an attitude in a way. And it's different outside of Hollywood. And the fact that people can function outside of Hollywood now with technology, you don't really have to be there, which is great. And in fact, you use the term cutting film, which I love. But today we're in the digital world. So there's a, the larger question is, is it better for independent production to use film or to really use digital? First and foremost, it's a cost issue. Right. I mean, if you're going to do a film, let's say you're going to do an independent film for a million dollars. Let's just use round numbers. You're going to do an independent film for a million dollars. And you want to shoot that digitally. Well, you're probably looking at the cost of running some cards if you don't own them and a DIT, which is a digital image technician on set to transfer that media for you and make as many copies as humanly possible before the end of the day. So you leave with 30 copies of your work, which I talk about in my book is so crucial. But, you know, with film, you've, you've got, you got somebody who's going to be loading it, getting it to, to, basically get developed telecine, which is merging and then digitally transferred anyway, unless you're really going old school and cutting on old moviolas or flatbeds or steamers. And the cost factor on the average, you know, because I've, I've bounced back and forth over the years. And once digital has become a thing, and it seems to be about a $250,000 to $300,000 difference when you look at film stock development and all the transfer. I mean, if you want to lose all that, I know there's filmmakers out there that are adamant about shooting on film. You know, I, Personally, well, I tell you what I think about that, but you know, I think that's a bit self-indulgent or like, you know, wearing a rubber in a car. I, I just don't know why you do it. 
driving alone across country. But <laughs> I just think, you know, uh, to each his own. But I just think it's, it's think about the the star that you could get for that two or three hundred thousand dollars for the day, you know, or that week that's going to sell your film. Nobody's going to buy your film because it's shot on film, in my opinion. It's uh, if anything, uh, they don't want that. So think about the star you missed out on if you're an independent filmmaker. I don't know why you'd sacrifice your, your ego and your, you know, there's so many filters you can get now to give that look and people will argue and throw things at your, your monitor. There's that budget part of you again, which is great. Another one. Yeah. Put it on the screen. Yeah. Put it on the screen. Yeah. Don't, put it on the screen. Yeah. You know, and I just don't think that's something that's going to make a difference. Well, also too, when digital first started, it was a little bit, it wasn't as clear as film, but these days I'm watching stuff and you know, you can't even tell anymore whether it's film or, or, yeah. or digital. No, especially you shoot some of these new cameras, you know, on 24P, it's got that film look as we call it. And, you know, we just shot some of the most beautiful sunrises and sunsets out in the desert in this last, this last film. And they're so beautiful. If anybody looks at that and says, God, they should have shot it on 35 whatever. <laughs> Somebody needs to get out more and look at their own sunsets, I think. One last question, because you are always focused on part of your approach to the budget, which is an important part of the whole aspect of filmmaking. Has Hollywood been able to figure out the economic reorganization due to the digital approach? What I mean by that is, as you said, if you're using film, you have the film loader, you have the director of cinematography, you have all the assistants, and that, those are all union positions. With digital, do you need that many people? And have they worked that out in Hollywood as to how Cruise well, Hollywood, you know, Hollywood will always find a new reason to, to trip itself up when it comes to budget. I mean, this was becoming a problem when the pandemic happened. I mean, we, we made three films successfully in the heart of the pandemic. And it became about, you know, because the unions were limiting how many people we could have on a set. So I mean, we did the first we were doing shooting double threat. We couldn't have more than 20 people. And that included casting crew on a set. And it's like 20 people on a set. That's great. That's that's usually about five or six less than we run. That's not a problem. But when you're doing other things, it becomes a problem. And I think they'll always find, you know, ways to spend more money than they need to. It's unfortunate. You know, the department of, you know, camera is a precious department. We try not to kneecap or handicap our, our cinematographers um, and give him, you know, at least his operators, his his assistants, his second assistants, you know, and maybe a swing or somebody in that department to help be an extra body uh, before you even touch DIT, the digital image trend, the technician or anybody. Um, but, you know, it's it's amazing. I, I break down budgets all the time for people and I, I scratch my head when they come and say, well, here's my budget. I got this $3 million film I'm doing. And I look at it. God, you know, you got a million dollars. It's never seeing the screen that you really don't need to spend that you're just chasing and, and, you know, like, well, why are we spending $150,000 on a rap party? Is Instagram that important to you? I'm just somebody who says, you know, bring a bottle of champagne and invite a few actors for that last day and maybe kick it up a notch for the last meal and just, you know, celebrate what you guys achieve and go to work. I, I'm not big on rap parties, but it's, you know, I, I just, it's, it, I think our business wastes the more money than any other. Um, it's, it's mind blowing what, what, what money is spent that never really matters at the end of the day. And you said earlier about going to backers for investment. And I think your approach is why you have backers because you're watching the pennies, the nickels, the dimes. Well, I, I treat their money as if it's my own. I got into it with an investor once we were shooting out of town and, and I had invited him to come visit. And um, we had 
a block of hotels and we had 30 or 40 hotel rooms. And, and I went to the, to the people that ran the hotel that were, were holding us there. And I said, look, you know, I've got a partner coming in that's very important to this production. I'd like to make sure he's got a room. I want to put it on the production's card and make sure it's a little nicer than the rest of ours. He just, you know, and he was our investor. And he called and he said, um, I'm down at the desk. And they said the room was paid for. He was so angry. He was so angry that I was like, you do realize we're here because of you and it's your money anyway. <laughs> I mean, but he was like, he was really touched. I think he was touched by that because it's a throw back on him. And, and that's not saying we're not wonderful, but it's, I really try to, I think you have to put your investors first. Without them, we wouldn't be doing what we do. A lot of times filmmakers get this, this mindset or this, this attitude going where they can, you know, throw it around and try to be the, the big shot. And I think, I think when investors see that, they don't, I, I think they think of, of us as being careless or foolish and disrespectful. I, I always try to treat their money as if it's my own. Um, you know, if I see a bank fee come up for a wire transfer, it's $12 because, you know, we wire so much money to the unions or to actors. I'll be on the phone fighting for 30 minutes over that $12, you know, to get it back right. from the bank. That's just because the $12 adds up, you know, you do 30 or 40 wires, you add that up at the end of the day, you're in post getting, getting that bank account lower and lower and lower. And you need that extra few bucks to pay an ADR session or an extra VFX to get done. You're going to wish you had it. And um, I've never gone back to an investor for more money. I've never gone over budget or over schedule on a film. Shane, we don't have the studio system anymore the way it used to be in the 40s and maybe into the 50s, but we still have the studios themselves. So where does the power reside from your perspective as an independent filmmaker? Well, the power resides, you know, the studios have tremendous power because of the screens that they own or hold. I mean, you'll, you won't hear many people talk about that, but, you know, as an indie rat like myself, it, you'll be lucky to get 10, 20 screens nationwide on a release, which is fine. But, you know, when those big, big studio films come out, I, you know, you're getting 3,300, 2,800, 3,900 screens for a film at these multiplexes, you know, Spider-Man comes out or, you know, the next big blockbuster. And that's normal. I'm sure when Top Gun 2 finally emerges, new Bond films come out, those hit the, the record number of screens. And, you know, the, the power is in having the control to, to really monopolize the eyeballs. And as an independent filmmaker, you really, you really rely on good distribution and streaming services and making sure that, you know, when you have a film that comes out independently, it's getting as many eyeballs as possible. We've been fortunate to to partner with some really good good groups in the last few years where you know our 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 materials getting out on 30 to 40 platforms just in North America. So when you're able to do that and you end up on Xbox or PlayStation or you know Spectrum or you know Falcon Cable, I mean you really cover it all and you put a good marketing campaign behind it, it's really helpful. You're still not going to see the dollars that you will from, you know, the blockbuster, you know, screens that are so coveted or the, 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 you know, the, the multiplex screens that are coveted, but you know, you're there and you're able to start a buzz. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's really where people want to be. Are people going to go out and spend $40 on an independent film, you know, with, on a date with popcorn and, and admission to sit usually at chintzier theater and probably not let them watch it in the luxury of their own home and enjoy it. And hopefully they'll tell their friends about it. It's, it's worked for us. Um, it's still new. We're still navigating it, but it's it's the way it is for so many of us now. And, and I've, I've just decided to embrace and consume it and, and try to make the most of it. And 
your embracing of the way things are has allowed you to flourish in independent film. And you have some great advice, and you shared some of it with us. And of course, again, your book is called What You Don't Learn in Film School, A Complete Guide to Independent Filmmaking. And I think you have more than one book in you. Are you working on another one? I have. I've thought about revising this one, but the real big revision is COVID. And then there's, of course, all the streaming stuff that I've experienced. I think I want to go through Double Threat and Night Train's release, which are coming out. I think Double Threat's coming out in June is what we're circling the wagons on on that. And then Night Train, we're going to try to get out for the end of the year. Uh, it will be ready. It's just about when is the best time to release it. And I think I want to get these two under my belt with Break Even's release. So I really, I, I have three films to go on in this new streaming world. Um, that's that I think I could be most effective in, in educating our, my readers that way instead of just throwing one out. I did a, a recent update on the book, uh, gave a little facelift, actually cut 16 pages out. It, it went from 199 to I think 185, whatever that math turns out to be. We just did that the other day. I just wanted to tighten some things up a little bit, give some more acknowledgements. And, and uh, but you know, I think I think there's definitely another book in me. Uh, a lot of my my desires is is to just talk about the, the life I've been blessed to have, and that's not in a self indulgent way. I mean. You know, you're, you're talking to a guy who heard the N-word for the first time directly out of John Wayne's mouth. I mean, you know, I've had a really interesting upbringing. Um, that, that's a book in itself. Yeah. You know, I was five years old and we were at, a, at an event that we were invited to. And I was sitting next to the Duke at a bar and God love him. But, you know, yeah, <laughs> I remember driving home and going, Dad, what did this mean? <laughs> I was like, but, I, you know, I've been experienced, you know, or because of Rock Hudson, I'm actually here. You know, my parents met when my father was doing I Station Zebra. My, my mom wasn't interested in meeting a, an out-of-work actor from Vermont. <laughs> but, uh, he happened to be co-starring with Rock Hudson on I Station Zebra. So that worked. And my dad actually proposed to my mother in Rock Hudson the night of the premiere. So, you know, there's some cool stuff there. And, um, you know, everything from running, you know, Charlie Sheen's production company during those those heyday years and working with the guys Poison and the other big bands I've worked with and there's just a lot of cool things. And it's not a, a dirt movie, a dirt book. It's not about throwing people under the bus. It's just kind of my view from the fence of what I've experienced in my my time here. It's been pretty fascinating. I, you know, just been very blessed and fortunate and some crazy stuff that I've experienced. So we'll see. I, I tinker with it once in a while. Um, but it's nothing that's on the you know priority list right now. Do you see yourself doing anything else but what you have done and what you are doing. What I mean by that is this. You grew up in the business. Do you see yourself living to a grand old age, still being in the business, still doing production and writing and budgeting I, and all that stuff? I, you know, I'll, I'll keep going as long as they'll have me. I don't want to be that guy <laughs> that's hanging around like a bad scar. You know, I, mean, I, uh, you know I take more pleasure, you know, I'm 50, as I said. I'd rather be 75, 80 in the corner of, some old coffee shop sipping on soup without my teeth and have a couple of young guys come in and nudge each other and say, you know, that guy, that guy changed the indie world. That guy, you know, taught us how to make a, a full length feature for 500 bucks and, you know, taught us how to, to navigate the distribution world of indie film or whatever. And I, I would take more pleasure in that. You know, I was done really funny. Uh, I was kind of done making movies and sure there's a lot of people out there that say it's too bad. You should have been, but, um, uh, you know, I I just wanted to teach. I was offered a, a, a really nice position at a major university as a teacher. And as I was kind of wrapping up a film to go do that, the book had come out. I, I 
I, I stumbled across a script from CJ Wally, who's a fine writer out of London. And uh, I, I read it and I said, this guy makes me want to make movies again. This is the kind of guy that writes the way I want to tell stories. So we connected and uh, we started working. We're on our third film together right now. So I was almost there quitting and felt, felt like I had made my mark and done enough damage in this industry. <laughs> this world. But uh, he dragged me back into it. So folks are going to have to sit through quite a bit more because we got a lot, we got a lot left. <laughs> That's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Shane Stanley, multi-Emmy award-winning filmmaker. Author of What You Don't Learn in Film School, A Complete Guide to Independent Filmmaking, available on Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Shane Stanley, go to shanestanley.net and whatyoudontlearninfilmschool.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at Shane Stanley, on Facebook at Shane Stanley Official, and on Instagram at Official Shane Stanley. Shane, thanks for being on the show. Ira, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. I hope we can do it again. Absolutely, we will. Thank you, Shane. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.